0: Amen. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, as the hymn says. Yeah, that's right. Well, good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 15. A good king is worthy of honor. You can think about examples of that from the Bible. I think especially of King David in the Old Testament. In many ways... King David was the high watermark of kings in the nation of Israel. So many kings that come after David in line are compared to David. They walked in the way of the Lord, but not according to David, his father, for instance. Uh, you can think about ways that David was honored in his own lifetime even. You know Some people are honored after their death. Uh, I just think of Herman Melville, the, the writer of Moby Dick. His his book wasn't recognized as uh, very important. Uh, it was long after his death that people considered the work a great book. It was filed, I guess, for a while in in libraries under I don't know what the technical term is, but whaleology, I guess. Uh, you know, a lot of I mean, a lot of people aren't aren't honored until after their death. Uh, David, he enjoyed being honored long before his death. You can think about all sorts of examples from the book of First and Second Samuel. Uh, think about the three mighty men in 2 Samuel 23, where David, kind of more to himself, uh, just talks about how he wishes he could have a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem. And at the time, there's a Philistine garrison there. And three of his mighty men take it upon themselves to crash in there Get a cup of water and bring it back to David. that communicates honor from his own military. they're willing to risk their lives for him. Uh, you might think about uh, the honor that David received from the people at large. you know he comes in when he's serving under Saul, and people are saying David is uh, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands you know there's honor there um, or you think about Israel, the northern kingdom coming to David and uh, He's been reigning for a few years in, in Judah, and they decide it's time for him to be our king. And they, they come down, and they tell him that, that he's bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh. So he's he's got to come. And I think it's just bone of his bone that they say, but he, he's got to come and be their king. You know, there's an honor that's communicated when this entire country comes to him, basically, and says, be our king. And you can think of honor as well uh, in, in his life when his son Absalom comes to to take his throne and to kill him. David flees. Think about the honor that the priests give David. Think of Zadok and Abiathar. They're they're going, rather than siding with the the new king that the people seem to be receiving, they want to risk their lives and go with David. Uh, That's an honor that is shown by the priesthood there. Uh, Like I said, David was in so many ways a high watermark of the good kings of Israel and everybody else was compared to that, and uh, he was honored in that way. Uh, the prophets who came after David spoke of a coming son of David, the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11 talks about. And we hear about this son, this Emmanuel in Isaiah 9. Or you think about Ezekiel 34, when God, after he uh, rebukes the, the bad shepherds of Israel, he says that he's going to send a servant like David, who's going—he actually says he's going to send David to come and shepherd his people. And he says, I will shepherd my people. Could you imagine what it would be like when the son of David came on the scenes? What kind of honor somebody who would surpass the high water mark of David, what kind of honor would he be worthy of? As we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark here and in our text we come to today, we find the opposite. This son of David who is worthy of all honor, uh, is attacked with all sorts of shame. That's going to be a key theme in our text here. I want to read it with you. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, verse 16 to 32. Jim mentioned Pilate. Jesus was just tried before Pilate. uh, And we pick up in verse 16 where he's now been given over to the soldiers. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you, would, uh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord of glory. And you are worthy of all glory. Thank you for receiving upon yourself the shame and the suffering that you did here as we just read about. I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help us as we engage your word. Please reveal more of yourself. Give us a greater delight in you. In your name we pray. Amen. In our text, we see that the king is shamed, and yet he is worthy of all glory. And We're going to consider... That and this text through two lenses. Uh, We're going to consider this through the the lens of suffering and shame. So we look at this text, we see that all over. Consider it through the lens of suffering and shame. Then we're going to consider that through the lens of service and honor. We'll be looking at the same text for those points. Uh, This is pretty common knowledge here. But I'll say it again, uh, the physical suffering of crucifixion was immense. And we've already seen that Jesus was scourged beforehand. That was just about the worst kind of whipping you could experience. Uh, in scourging, generally there would be two people, and I won't go into all the details here. There would generally be two guys with whips so they could inter, uh, interlap the lashes. Basically, there would be a constant beating. Uh, the, the whip for this was generally about this long. It was a shorter whip. would have about three or four or five different leather straps on it. It would be weighted on the end with a hook on the end, and then pieces of bone uh, and metal embedded up and down the leather. Uh, the beating that people would receive from that would be so severe. Like I mentioned last week, some people didn't survive. Uh, and I will spare you the details, but you can imagine that it, was gruesome. Uh, it it left people in a pretty sorry state. Uh, he experiences this, takes this on, uh, and one of the realities we see here, we're through this text, we're going to see that the suffering and shame are just interwoven through this. Because as bad as the physical suffering is, it's all public. All of this has. Various audiences, but an audience along the way. Uh, Pain and punishment is bad enough, but there is. Maybe you've had the experience of being uh, disciplined in some sense publicly. Uh, There's a shameful element to it. And we see that shame is casted on Jesus uh, here uh, through this whole passage. Uh, And we can see examples of it as we work through it. In verses 16 to 20, Jesus is shamed before the military. He's shamed before Pilate's uh, guards here. It says that there's a battalion that's going to be about 600 soldiers. Uh, in this part, you see that he, he's given a, a purple robe. His, his clothes are stripped off of him. He's given a purple robe. It's, of course, purple was a, a color that communicated royalty. So he's given royal robes and they, they make a crown out of thorns, that they press down on his head. And uh, then the army comes before him, and in mocking, they're they're kneeling down before him. They're saying, Hail the king! Uh, What's a king without his army? Uh, And here he is before them, and they're they're mock praising him. And all throughout, it's mixed with this false praise and, and beating. They're beating him. They're spitting on him. They're communicating to him that he is vile. Uh, and he is to be mocked. They're, uh, they're casting this upon him. Uh, and afterwards, after they've had their fun, they put his clothes back on him. And they lead him out. Jesus is in rough shape by this point. Uh, it's no wonder that in verse 20, a passerby is compelled to, to bear the cross with him and for him. Uh, we're given his name. Uh, Simon of Cyrene, it's an area of North Africa. Uh, we might wonder why he's named, and even, not just him, but his sons are named as well. Uh, and at least part of that, one of those things we see throughout the Gospel of Mark is that there's, there's such detail uh, at different points that really point to the historicity of the book. Uh, these are actual things that happened in time and in space, real people were involved, And if people want, they can go and look up these people and go talk to them. Uh, Another reason is it's very possible that these uh, people, uh, Simon, Alexander, Rufus, uh, they may very well have actually come to follow Christ, and they would have been known to the Christian community. Uh, So perhaps these kinds of details are given for those reasons. Uh, But we see Jesus uh, in need here. He's helped along by Simon and Uh, In our text, we see that Jesus is led to Golgotha. Uh, It's an Aramaic word, and it it means the place of the skull. Uh, I didn't know this, but uh, our word Calvary comes from the Latin. uh, The the Latin word for skull is is Calva or Calvaria. Uh, And so it's just communicating back again to the the hill. uh, In tradition, it was understood to be in the shape of a skull. At least historically, that's what we understand it to be or know it to be. Uh, This is the hill where Jesus is crucified. And of course, the point of having it on a hill is, again, it's public. Uh, That way, the the maximum amount of people can see what's happening here. Verse 23 in our passage, uh, we see that Jesus is offered wine that's mixed with myrrh. The point of that... Would have been to deaden the pain, to to remove some of the sting of the pain, and it's interesting. Jesus refuses it; he won't take it. Uh, I think that communicates a few things to us. I think he, first of all, he refuses to be numbed to what's going on. Second of all, that also communicates that he's in control. It's one of the striking things we thre- see through the gospel accounts here in his betrayal, his arrest. Jesus is in, in control. He's even in control of himself. I mean, it's really easy when we're in pain to want to find an out. And it's understandable, but Jesus isn't doing that here. Uh, he is in enough control of himself that he's, he's not scrambling for some way out of this. And he, so he refuses it. In verse 24 uh, it says here, uh, hard words, honestly, Strike me every time we read him here. Uh, says, and they crucified him. It's short and bitter. And of course here, Jesus is nailed down and he's lifted up. Again, this is a public execution. Uh, this is uh, meant to be shaming. Uh, next in the text we see that his clothes are, uh, they cast lots for it. Gamble over his clothes that other gospel writers mention that this is a fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two eighteen. and We see it even quoted in form here. Uh, often we see depictions of Jesus on a cross and he's got some covering. Uh, the reality is that's probably not the case. Uh, it was very common for the Romans to crucify people completely naked. Uh, and here they're gambling over his clothes. Uh, and again, that's just another layer of the shame that this is all supposed to be a part of. The Romans wanted to make a public spectacle of those they execute to deter uh, people from doing the same. Uh, and uh, the, the shame that we see here in the suffering, it doesn't stop there. And we, uh, the text tells us that a title... The title over top of his head is that he's the king of the Jews. That's the charge that he is supposedly guilty of. And again, this is, uh, this is meant to communicate probably from the Roman side that this is what we do to people who claim to be king. Uh, and it, again, it's to be a deterrent. Uh, but that's not it. Uh, the crowds, we see shame from them. Verse 29 In 30, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Uh, Here they're they're challenging him. It seems that he's boasted such great things that he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, why don't you start by coming down from the cross? Uh, They're mocking him there. The chief priests, uh, we've been following them along through the gospel accounts. Uh, all the way back in chapter 3, the leadership of Israel has wanted Jesus dead. They've been plotting and planning. They've been arguing with, with him in public. They've been making plans. Now finally, uh, they're, they're getting their way. It's, they're having their day of victory and, and they can't keep it to themselves. They, they join in the mocking as well. Uh, they mock him saying that he saved others. He can't save himself. Uh, they go on. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're even mocking him in his call to believe in him. Uh, in some ways, it's almost like the temptation of the serpent in the wilderness, who told Jesus, "If you really are the Son of God, turn these this bread, this, these stones into bread. Uh, prove yourself." Uh, and here they're mocking him and doing something similar. If you really are the Christ, if you really are the Savior, why don't you do that? Why don't you just start by saving yourself? If that's not bad enough, even the criminals who are crucified alongside Jesus are joining in the mocking. Now we know from other gospel accounts that one of them does turn and believe in Jesus, and there Jesus forgives him. Uh, But Mark is really driving on us over and over in this account the the depth of the shame that Jesus is experiencing that's that's the point he's making again suffering and shame run intermingled through this story As we think about the the grand sweeping narrative of the scripture, again, we would expect that the son of David, who has been promised all along, would receive honor even greater than David. But we see in our passage he doesn't. Uh, The one who surpasses that high water mark is despised and rejected. He's mocked by the military. The Roman military mocks him. The priests, they're mocking him and shaming him. And the people, the crowds, they're mocking him. And as we read this, uh, we might be tempted to, to think and to feel that all is lost, uh, all is wrecked, and that all is for naught. But feelings can be misleading. As we look at the story, maybe if you, if you take it in a sense and turn it 90 degrees, uh, we can see that there are incredibly wondrous things going on here. There's uh, irony That is delightful, even in a story so horrid. I do want to turn now and consider service and honor here. Uh, This is not merely suffering and shame. As we know from the the broader testimony of scriptures, that this is also service. Do you remember back in John chapter 13? uh, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They're all sitting around and... Apparently, nobody wanted to wash each other's feet. It wasn't something that anybody was about to stoop down and do. Except for Jesus. He gets up from the meal, takes off his outer garment, and he puts a towel around his waist. He stoops down and he begins to wash their feet. It's a job that nobody wanted to do. But Jesus did it. So we think about the problem of our sin and the desperate place that puts us in uh, we see in Christ the willingness to stoop down to do what none of us would want to do none of us would want to take this upon ourselves and to be honest none of us could none of us could atone for our own sins or or make our own way back to god christ uh, he laid aside his glory and he came down to take up this job that nobody else would want to do it's no wonder that Paul, when he's encouraging the church at Philippi to be humble, to serve one another, to think of each other as more highly than themselves, he goes to this reality. I want to read that passage. You can turn there if you'd like. Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As we think about the ministry of Jesus, it is marked by humble love and service. If we think back over the, the gospel of Mark, we see Jesus going from town to town throughout Galilee, preaching and teaching. Patiently laboring to teach. He's preaching, inviting people into the kingdom of God. Uh, town by town, he's going around spending himself to heal people, to lift people's physical afflictions. He's Pouring himself out constantly so that he hardly has any time for himself. Uh, loving and serving and healing people. Then he's coming face to face in confrontations with demons. And he's casting demons out of people. Uh, think about what kind of a process it must have been for Jesus for three years to live with his disciples uh, who weren't perfect, who didn't always understand him, who sometimes feel like hardly ever got it right. And he's patiently discipling them. And teaching them and encouraging them over and over and over again. Think of all the ways just in a given day Jesus must have humbled himself to love those who were around him. His life was full of that. And as we've been reading in Mark here, his death is marked by that as well. Uh, his, he lays down his life as an act of service and love to us. And the mysterious and amazing truth is that it's in this very shame and suffering that he endures that he's glorified. The suffering that he subjects himself to is the means to glorification. If we continue in, in Philippians 2, picking up in verse 9, it says, therefore, in light of this Humble obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very shame and suffering of the cross is what leads to his glory and exaltation. Now, on, on the one hand, Jesus was already infinitely glorious. Uh, You can't add glory to infinity. Uh, In the the reality that he was God, he was infinitely glorious. Uh, So we're not talking about adding five to infinity, and he's more glorious in that sense. Uh, In the the fact that he was God, he was infinitely glorious. Uh, But there are at least two ways in which God is glorified in Christ through the cross there's at least two ways that we can talk about God being glorified in Christ through the cross the first way is that at the cross we see something about God that we would have never seen otherwise and this goes right back to to the fall in creation God made the world he made it good creation pursued sin and self-destruction God God through the cross, is revealing that He is merciful. That He is patient. That He is loving. God could have simply revealed that He is judge. When the creation went wonky, He could have just wiped it out. He didn't have to spare even Noah and his family. He could have taken it all out. At the cross, God reveals His mercy. You know, before God created... God was just as glorious before he created as after. Uh, He didn't grow in glory in that sense. You know, God never had to be patient with himself within the Trinity. The Son never sinned against the Father. Uh, It's it's not as if uh, those aspects of God were on display. There wasn't any opportunity for that. God never had to be merciful with himself. But, as God makes this world, as it goes haywire... God's love that he's always had looks like mercy. We see the mercy of God at the cross. So in that sense, we get a better view of who God is through the cross that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. So maybe we're not talking about God more glorified as if he's more glorious, but we get a better sight of the glory that he has as we see what he does in the cross. There's a second sense in which we can talk about Christ being more glorified through this, and that's the reality of Jesus being the Son of God taking on human flesh. Uh, when he was born in the manger, he was a baby. When people interacted with him in his ministry, he looked like just about any other Jew walking around in Israel. Uh, Isaiah says he had no glory that we would behold him. Is that the word? Uh, the, What was it? Comeliness, Comeliness, yes, the KJV, yeah. He he didn't stick out for being particularly glorious if you would have seen him walking on the street. Uh, And in his crucifixion, he's humble. He really doesn't look glorious at that point. But in his resurrection, he's vindicated by the Father. He's glorified. In his ascension, and in his being seated at the right hand of God, he's further glorified. Uh, And... In his return, in his final judgment, in all things, he will be glorified. So Christ, as he's taken on humanity, he does grow in glory. He, one day, will be glorified by everybody. Even those who have rejected him will be forced to confess that he is Lord on bended knee, even in the rebellion. That's not the time to confess Jesus as Lord. Uh, If you haven't confessed him as Lord yet, go to him now. Confess that before him. Now is the day to confess him as Lord, not that day. Jesus will be glorified. uh, And it is through the cross that he is glorified. And as we look at other parts of scripture, we see that Jesus' glory is tied to his sacrifice. I appreciated that Jim read out of Revelation 4. uh, Sets the stage good for Revelation 5 that I was planning on reading here. We see in Revelation four, the glory of God on display there, the, the creatures falling down and worshiping Him. Let's pick up in Revelation chapter five. Notice, as we read this, the, the link between Jesus' worthiness and His sacrifice, His glory and what He has done for us in His death. John continues in Revelation five. Then I saw, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The Lord Jesus Christ will be praised for eternity for what he has done. He is worthy of our praise today. Yes, He took all of the shame on himself. But don't miss the fact that through that, he was bringing glory to himself. He was purchasing us so that we could be before him forever. He was saving us. Yes, there is shame. And it's hard to read a passage like this. But there's glory in it. Today is the day for us to worship this king. The world around us may continue to cast shame on him, to despise him. Don't be ashamed of him. We can endure shame in this world and in this life. Glory awaits us. We will be praising him forever. Do want to invite now the men to prepare for communion and Elsa to come and play. Let's let's go to prayer together.